0: Let's show you uh, the the naivete and the, uh, you know, fantasy land Joe Biden's living in. I'm not being naive. I'm not speaking to President Trump who will do whatever he wants. I'm not speaking to Mitch McConnell who will do what he wants and he does. I'm speaking to those Republicans out there, Senate Republicans, who know deep down what is right for the country and consistent with the Constitution as I stay here in the, stand here in the Constitution Center. Not just what's best for their party. I don't believe the people of this nation will stand for it. So, not that Joe Biden is exactly a profile in courage. I think you know my opinion on him. Um, Republicans don't care about the Constitution. They care about the Constitution when it benefits them convenient, benefits them politically. Uh, Ted Cruz, for starters, All of these people, they don't give a damn about the Constitution. That's number one. Number two, um, they don't care about norms. Uh, They don't care about consistency. You cannot shame Republicans because most of them are complete extremist zealots. And like a lot of their base, they have come up in politics really with an ideology On don't tread on me, let me hoard as much wealth as humanly possible, and an extreme fetish on unborn fetuses. That's the truth. They don't care about life, like actual life, like children getting massacred in schools. Don't care about those lives. Uh, You know, the coronavirus pandemic, clearly a lot of these Republicans don't give a damn. Uh, But they're very concerned about, you know... uh, life in a woman's womb. And this has been the culture war that honestly has helped Republicans as demographics in America change on the presidential level. It has helped them continue to win, even though the demographics, not just in terms of more Latinos voting and more black people voting and younger people not being conservative, but it has helped them in terms of a huge voting bloc that literally just votes on abortion. So, uh, I mean, imagine evangelicals voted for Donald Trump and supported Donald Trump, a man who cheated on every wife, who's been accused of rape, I think by 15 to 20 women, uh, who is the preeminent degenerate of our time. They voted for him because he sang the tune on abortion and a few other things. So the bottom line is, we could get into debates, but I'm, I, I tend not to fearmonger. but I'm gonna tell you the truth. Before, you know, when people told you to vote for Hillary Clinton in 2016, it was hypothetical. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still here. Now it's not hypothetical. There is a very, very, and this is not me fear mongering. This is the facts. And if you want to, you know, put your head in the sand, that's fine. But the facts are there is a very, very strong chance that either Roe v. Wade will be overturned or it won't be overturned, but it it will be weakened. You know, a good example is how the Voting Rights Act was weakened to the point that it is essentially destroyed. Um, I'm gonna read you an article on how if Trump uh, chooses a justice that we think he's going to choose, Amy Coney Barrett, who is on the record uh, against Roe versus Wade, obviously Brett Kavanaugh and several others are clear, clearly not for Roe versus Wade, um, it is very likely that it would either be overturned by a 6-3 Supreme Court, 6-3 conservative Supreme Court, but when you look at Stephen Breyer, I had Colin circle him. He's 82. Um, You know, nobody has a crystal ball, but he's 82. So if something were to happen to Stephen Breyer uh, in a another four years of Trump, then you possibly are looking at a 7-2 Supreme Court in favor of Republicans. Now, we could get into a debate about, and I've seen some other progressive outlets today talking about how ridiculous it even is that we have this system of geriatric unelected judges, essentially defa- de- uh, deciding the fate of the country, in many cases, the world. I agree. I don't really understand why these people have lifetime terms. It, it doesn't, nobody else has lifetime terms. Um, I think, particularly for something like this, uh, they should be made to retire at a certain age. Um, I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg should have retired under Barack Obama, but it is what it is. There's no point in looking back. So at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I'm not telling anyone how to vote. Uh, I don't think that's my role, but people need to realize this is no longer a decision about the lesser of two evils between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. This is not what this is about anymore. Frankly, regardless of whether or not Biden wins, I think there's a very strong chance they're gonna ram it through anyway. Because frankly, I think Mitch McConnell, in terms of his legacy, cares a lot more about cementing 50 to 75 years of conservative rule on the Supreme Court than possibly losing the Senate for four to eight years. If you look at both options, he cares a lot more about cementing the legacy of the Supreme Court. Um, I mean, if you want to get into the politics a little bit, this is where it stands. Uh, Senators returned to Washington on Monday with the Supreme Court nomination fight looming. uh, Back in the Senate for the first time since Ginsburg's death, Senate uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, reiterated his plan to fill her vacant seat. The Senate has more than sufficient time to process a nomination. Um, Republicans could try to rush to confirm a replacement for Ginsburg before election day, but doing so could put some of their members up for re-election in greater, greater political peril and keep them off the campaign trail in the crucial closing weeks of the campaign. There are risks in waiting, too, particularly if voters overwhelmingly reject Trump. and and Republican senators. Two Republican senators, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and Susan Collins of Maine, have publicly objected to the idea of a vote before election day, meaning McConnell could only afford to lose one more member of his party, given his slim 53 to 47 majority. That focused attention on Senators Mitt Romney, Cory Gardner, and Charles Grassley. So let me tell you what I think here. Number one, uh, I don't think I don't think uh, Trump or McConnell is going to try and ram it through before Election Day. Um, Obviously, Trump is already huffing and puffing that that's what he wants. But you also want to give an incentive and more motivation for Republican, if you're Trump and McConnell, for Republican voters to come out. If you try and ram it through before Election Day, then... I guess in, on one breath, that would motivate Republicans to come out because you got another Supreme Court justice through. But on the other end, if it's hanging in the balance as Trump needs to be reelected for you to do this, it will gin up Republican support. So I don't think they're going to be, ram it through before election day. However, whether Biden wins the presidency or not, no one, and I think Joe Biden is living in a fantasy world, uh, with all due respect to Chuck Schumer and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, I don't. You could do press conferences together, which I found a little odd, but I digress. Uh, you can, if you're protesters in D.C. We saw protesters waking up Lindsey Graham at five in the morning this morning. You could do all of those things. Uh, frankly, you could drop on Lindsey Graham's door. And all of their doors for the, the next X amount of days till inauguration day. It ain't gonna matter. These people have no souls. They have no spot, They have no uh, shame. They don't care if they're being hypocrites. They don't care if they're being inconsistent. And most of all, they don't particularly care about whether this will further damage. Uh, The credibility of our democracy, even though we don't have a democracy because we live in the United Corporations of America. So then it comes down to, again, in my opinion, no matter how you vote, even if Trump loses, they're going to try and ram this through in the lame duck. I, you know, I'm not a Senate procedure expert, but from what I've read, yeah, there's things that Schumer could do and the Democrats could do to delay this but they can't delay it for months. The inauguration's January 21st. Okay? So, to me, to me, I think this is a true test of whether the Democrats are going to remain feckless for the rest of eternity or they're going to start rolling up their sleeves and going to a knife fight holding a bazooka gun instead of a spoon. Because typically, Democrats hold the bazooka gun, excuse me, hold a spoon as the Republicans bring the bazooka gun. So what am I suggesting? What am I suggesting? Because to me, again, I don't like Joe Biden. I certainly don't like Donald Trump, but to me, it it this is no longer about uh, lesser of two evils. This is about the next 50 to 70 years of the Supreme Court. And let me be clear, whatever, People's strategy on voting. You know, I know some think no, don't vote for Biden because uh, if you keep giving the Democrats your vote, then they're never gonna and they're never going to actually come to your side if they know they could just get your vote, even though they treat you like crap and don't give you anything you want. It's the um, you know abused, uh, battered wives syndrome. We just keep coming back and back for more. They call it. But again, to me, this is no longer about that because there is the things that we as progressives want, gonna be very hard to get through, even if they come through legislatively. When you have a 6-3 conservative Supreme Court, a lot of that could be struck down. Case in point, the Voting Rights Act was a very non-controversial thing for a very long time. I mean, obviously not when it passed, but decades later, it passed with overwhelming majorities in the, in the House, the Senate. Legislatively, both sides did the right thing and just reinstated it. Well, the Supreme Court struck it down. So who's to say if by sheer, um, if, if one day God looks down, if there is a God, and we get Medicare for all in this country? Who's to say a six-three conservative, ju- a conservative Supreme Court justice, conservative Supreme Court majority, or if Stephen, Stephen Breyer croaks? And again, he's 82; he's the oldest one of all of them. Who's to say that a Supreme Court majority of six-three or seven-two can't find a technicality that says Medicare for all is unconstitutional? I mean, I just want to show you the stakes because I do believe, and I'm not trying to be fatalist, but I do believe there's a very good chance that Roe versus Wade would either be overturned or severely weakened if Trump is able to confirm a sixth conservative judge. Let me just read you a little bit of this. Here's how the process to potentially topple Roe might play out. Number one, state legislatures would pass laws that make it overtly illegal to have or perform an abortion. Although SCOTUS ruled in Roe that women have a fundamental constitutional right to have abortions, later case law narrowed Roe's reach by ruling states could regulate abortions. From parental and spousal consent law, to mandatory waiting periods, to physician licensing privileges, states have passed many laws that make the process of, of obtaining an abortion more complex. State legislatures have been standing by for years, waiting to pass laws that clearly conflict with Roe, either by requiring overly burdensome regulations or by banning abortions altogether. Until now, passing such statutes wasn't a good move because they were bound to be struck down when the statute was questioned as part of litigation. A strong conservative majority on the Supreme Court, however, might welcome the chance to reconsider the Roe rule, and some states would be more than willing to create an opportunity for it to do so. Those states already saw Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation to the Supreme Court as an opportunity to push aggressive legislation. Number two, someone, or more likely some group of people, will sue. That litigation will begin in federal district court and make a beeline for the Supreme Court. It is possible that the case would even be fast-tracked because cases cases involving pregnancy of an inherent urgency. When the Supreme Court hears the case, the conservative litigants will argue Roe versus Wade should be overturned and that a right to have an abortion should not be read into the established right to privacy under the First Amendment. And by the way, that is Roe versus Wade was ruled in large part based on those grounds, uh, an implied right of privacy under the First Amendment. If that argument prevails, then individual states could be permitted to legislate against abortion. Abortion would still be a matter of state law, but there could be but there could be less limitations on how states would be permitted to legislate. Number three, conservative justices will band together and change the Roe rule. There are several road there are several roads the Supreme Court could take to undo Roe. The court could explicitly overturn Roe, ruling that abortion is not a fundamental right after all, and leave the states to legislate however they wish. Alternatively, the court could distinguish the case from Roe rule that there's some legal right to have an abortion, but narrow that right considerably. I'll put this in the super chat if you want to read. But the bottom line is, folks, make no mistake about it. It's very rare that you hear from me something as a certainty. I believe it is a certainty that if Trump is able to uh, nominate a sixth conservative, particularly one that is on the record, like Amy Coney Barrett, believing that Roe versus Wade was passed in a faulty manner, and being pro-life, uh, it does. They don't need to straight up overturn it to make it ineffective. They can weaken it. Uh, they could give more power to the states to weaken it, and then if they do that, yeah. If you're in the, you know, let's say they don't overturn it, but they severely weaken it, yeah. If you're lucky and you live in New York. Or New Jersey or California, you'll probably still have access to an abortion because these are Democratic states. But Republican states all over the country, including Texas, Louisiana, Florida, that have spent God knows how long weakening, they're gonna be free to do that. And there's gonna be very, very, um, not much that, you know, women's rights group could do to stop it. So those are the states. I'd like to uh, read something. This is from um, uh, a law law professor and historian of the Supreme Court, Sam Moyne uh, in Jacobin. And this stood out to me. The question was, one of the reasons that John Roberts has become the new swing justice is there's this well-publicized concern that he has about the legitimacy of the court in the eyes of the public. If Trump manages to get another hard right nominee on the court and there is a uh, non-Roberts hard right majority, is there a possibility that we see the court moving in an even further right direction regardless of what he thinks? This was the answer. Oh, undoubtedly, John Roberts is disempowered in that case and the justices further right make gains. Now it's plausible that not just Roberts, but in some cases, Brett Kavanaugh would join a centrist block with Stephen Breyer and Elena, Elena Kagan. The conservatives have different issues they care about and are not always in lockstep. Only maybe Clarence Thomas is a fan of Trumpism, but the rest are not just products of an earlier phase of the conservative movement, but faithful to it. And they have other games than Trump himself has, notably when it comes to abortion. But there's just no doubt that affirmative action, which is probably already dead, is on the way out if Ginsburg is replaced by Trump and abortion may not last long. The most frightening possibility is the constitutional invalidation of the administrative state, which may already be in the cards no matter what. And in general, the jurisprudence will move to the right because Roberts will no longer be the swing vote. I also think there's something else aside from abortion that we need to be talking about. If you haven't noticed, conservatives are trying to criminalize protest. I mean, we know what's going on with Julian Assange. I've been covering the extradition hearing uh, going on in the UK but all over the country, conservative Republican governors are trying to criminalize protest. Now, uh, Ron DeSantis, a Trump mini-me, is calling for further penalties for protest. DeSantis told reporters during a news briefing today uh, uh, that a new bill would charge protesters with felonies for damaging property and inflicting injuries, as well as sentence them to mandatory jail time for hitting a law enforcement officer. The bill, which state lawmakers will consider during next year's legislative session, would also bar protesters who commit crimes from receiving state benefits or working for the state. Quote, we're not going to go down the road that other places have gone. If you do it and you know that a ton of bricks will rain down on you, then I think people will think twice about engaging in this type of conduct. Let me tell you, as somebody who's been, ain't my first rodeo, I've been to Standing Rock, I've been to many, many cities with protests, uh, they will... A cop will attack you, and then they'll prosecute you, saying you attacked a police officer. That's how it works in America, which is going more and more to be a fascist state. Who's to say that a six-three conservative justice won't cement and confirm, uh, you know, criminalizing protest in the United States, creating massive fines, creating felony jail time. Uh, solidifying and confirming what these southern states have tried to do in terms of um, interfering with critical infrastructure on these pipelines fights. So this is not only about Roe versus Wade, although to me that's the most important. I mean if you're a progressive particularly if you're a man you should be an ally to women period. And Roe versus Wade is in my view sacrosanct Uh, I'm going to have a child sooner or later. If it's a girl if it's a girl I certainly don't want a 6-3 or possibly 7-2 conservative Supreme Court majority, do you? And I hope you're not confusing this. Again, this is not me uh, telling you how to vote. This is me telling you this is what's at stake. This is now what's at stake. This is not a drill. It ain't theoretical anymore. You get it. In in America, when you do... Real investigative journalism that exposes banks and governments and fraud, typically it's not treated as big breaking news because the media is in bed with the banks and the government. Remember the Panama Papers uh, from a couple years ago? That was a mega story. It proved that major uh, wealthy sleazebags, Democratic Party donors, Republican Party donors were basically laundering money all over the globe. Uh, stashing it on islands and things like that. Uh, Basically, the corporate media, you know, sighed, said, oh, that's interesting. And then they went back to the reality TV show of Stormy Daniels and the Cold War. Uh, Well, I got to tell you, this BuzzFeed news story that I have not fully been able to get through, it's very long, is essentially confirming what I've been telling you as long as I've had a public platform, we live in the United Corporations of America. The government is just a stand in and puppet for the banks, for the corporations. They work for the banks of the corporations. BuzzFeed has broken a massive story on a global criminal syndicate where major U.S. banks, major governments have essentially just been the processor for illegal drug cartels, for terrorist financing, and for other criminal activity. And the banks essentially just allowed them to keep doing it because they got their profit and their fees. And the governments did not do anything to the banks because the banks run our government. I'm not going to read the whole story. It's pretty long. I would encourage you if you have time, try to get through as much of this story because in a sane society with a responsible media, yeah, I know there's a pandemic and RBG just died. They should find time. They should be leading many broadcasts. This is a big deal. This story uh, that Buzzfeed broke, credit to them uh, for a really, really important story. A huge trove of secret government documents reveals for the first time how the giants of Western banking move trillions of dollars in suspicious transactions, enriching themselves and their shareholders while facilitating the work of terrorists, kleptocrats, and drug kingpins. And the U.S. government, despite its vast power, fails to stop it. More like enables it. Today, the FinCEN files thousands of, quote, suspicious activity reports and other U.S. government documents, offer an unprecedented view of global financial corruption, the banks enabling it, and the government agencies that watch as it flourishes. BuzzFeed News has shared these reports with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists and more than 100 news organizations in 88 countries. This is a two-year investigation, by the way, from BuzzFeed. These documents, compiled by banks, shared with the government but kept from public view, expose the hollowness of banking safeguards and the ease with which criminals have exploited them. Well, banks don't have safeguards because the Democratic Party of the 1990s deregulated blanks. Thank you, Bill Clinton, Joe Biden, and the rest of them. Profits, and well, Republicans were with them too. Profits from deadly drug wars, fortunes embezzled from developing countries, and hard-earned savings stolen in a Ponzi scheme were all allowed to flow into and out of these financial institutions, despite warnings from the bank's own employees. You see, before I go on, this is why I never really bought Elizabeth Warren's campaign, other than the fact that she doesn't stand for anything about, you know, left Bernie standing at the altar twice and many other things, because you can't regulate your way out of corruption, right? Elizabeth Warren, her main thing was, putting the regulators back in place. Um, You know, uh, putting the cop back on the beat. You know, not fundamentally changing the rotten system, but deregulated blanks. Did I say that? I meant banks. (laughs) Sorry. A little hungover. But, you know, the bottom line is you could tighten regulation. You could put more enforcements. But if the system Is set up in a way that governments can't actually hold banks accountable, that bankers will never go to jail in this case, which I'm about to read you, for literally just processing drug cartel money laundering, terrorist money laundering. Then it doesn't matter what regulators you put in place. They're not able to do anything. Let me read more. Money laundering is a crime that makes other crimes possible. It could accelerate economic inequality, drain public funds, undermine democracy, and destabilize nations, and the banks play a key role. Quote, some of these people in those crisp white shirts in their sharp suits are feeding off the tragedy of people dying all over the world, said Martin Woods, a former suspicious transaction investigator for Wachovia. Laws that were meant to stop financial crime have instead allowed it to flourish. So long as a bank files a notice that it may be facilitating criminal activity, it all but immunes itself and its executives from criminal prosecution. The suspicious activity alert effectively gives them a free pass to keep moving the money and collecting the fees. Let me read that again. Laws that were meant to flourish, meant to stop financial crimes, have instead allowed it to flourish. So long as a bank files a notice that it may be facilitating criminal activity, it all but immunizes itself and its executives from criminal prosecution. That's like if the getaway driver to the bank robbery like sends a, an alert, hey, I'm, I'm facilitating the bank robbery. If you, get, if you send the note beforehand, you can't be criminally prosecuted even though you're driving the getaway car. That's insane. The Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, is the agency within the Treasury Department charged with combating money laundering, terrorist financing, and other financial crimes. It collects millions of these suspicious activity reports, known as SARS. It makes them available to U.S. law enforcement agencies and other nations' financial intelligence operations. It even compiles a report called Kleptocracy Weekly that summarizes the dealings of foreign leaders such as uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin, What it does not do is force the banks to shut the money laundering down. In the rare instances when the US government does crack down on banks, it often relies on sweetheart deals called deferred prosecution agreements, which include fines but no high level arrests. Thank you, President Obama. The Trump administration has made it even harder to hold executives personally accountable under guidance by former Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein that warned government agencies against piling on. Yes, why would we pile on Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Chase, Swachovia, AIG, Countrywide for bringing down the global financial system for foreclosing on your home illegally and draining your savings that you worked hard for? Why would we pile on those sinners? But the FinCEN FinCEN Files investigation shows that even after they were prosecuted or fined for financial misconduct, banks like J.P. Morgan Chase, HSBC, Standard Charter, Deutsche Bank, and Bank of New York Mellon continued to move money for suspected criminals. Suspicious payments flow around the world and into countless industries, from international sports to Hollywood entertainment to luxury real estate to Nobu sushi restaurants. They filter into the companies that make familiar items from people's lives, from the gas in their car to the granola in their cereal bowl. The FinCEN files expose an underlying truth of the modern era. The network through which dirty money traversed the world have become vital arteries of the global economy. They enable a shadow financial system so wide-ranging and so unchecked that it has become inextricable from the so-called legitimate economy. Banks with household names have helped to make it so. BuzzFeed's investigation shows that Standard Chartered moved money on behalf of Al-Zaruni Exchange, a Dubai-based business that was later accused of laundering cash on behalf of the Taliban. During the years that Al Zaruni was a standard charter customer, Taliban militants staged violent attacks that killed civilians and soldiers. HSBC's Hong Kong branch allowed WCM 777, a Ponzi scheme, to move more than 15 million, even as the business was being barred from operating in three states. Authorities say the scam stole at least 80 million from investors, mainly Latino and Asian immigrants. And the company's owner used diluted funds to buy two golf courses, a 7,000 square foot mansion, a 39.8 carat diamond, and mining rights in Sierra Leone. Jesus. Bank of America, Citibank, J.P. Morgan Chase, American Express, and others collectively processed millions of dollars in transactions for the family of Viktor Krapunov, the former mayor of Kazakhstan's most populous city. Even after Interpol issued a red notice for his arrest, Krapunov who had already fled to Switzerland and who claims the allegations are politically motivated, was later convicted in absentia on charges that included bribe-taking and defrauding the city through the sale of public property. The banks mentioned in this story said they could not comment on specific transactions due to bank secrecy laws, I'm sure. Their statements can be found here. By law, banks must file suspicious activity reports when they spot transactions that bear the hallmarks of money laundering or other financial misconduct, such as large round number transactions or payments between companies with no discernible business relationships. Suspicious activity reports are not by themselves evidence of crime, but FinCEN's director, Kenneth Blanco, has called them vital for law enforcement investigations. So, and for more than a year, Buzzfeed and its partner news organizations across the world mined the information on these tens of thousands of pages. So in a nutshell, folks, and, here it is one more time if you want to read this piece. And, you know, credit where credit's due. This is a great investigation. This is what media should be doing, not creating a new Cold War with Russia, with Russia Russiagate nonsense. But in a nutshell, the major banks whom were bailed out by the government after defrauding you uh, and predatory house mortgages, predatory lending— They simultaneously have been essentially serving as the middleman and processor for drug cartels money laundering, for terrorists money laundering, for laundering by uh, plutocrats and kleptocrats around the world, while black men are being executed by police, while black men are still in jail for nonviolent drug offenses, while people are being evicted from their homes during a pandemic. You think there's two different systems of justice? Not just in America, but in the world? I got news for you. Break up the banks. Bernie is right. Nationalize the banks. You literally have cold hard evidence here that you're talking trillions of dollars. And by the way, this trillions of dollars that's being laundered, this isn't like... Just money from, you know, that they robbed from a bank. A lot of this money being laundered is working people's money from around the world. They're laundering. uh, I've seen this uh, through research I've done on drug cartels, watching El Chapo. They're laundering pension money. You know, money that you have in pension accounts. Uh, If you're a labor union worker, they're laundering that money. Laundering retirement savings money. They're laundering money for contractors. So it ain't just like, they're not just like taking it from the bank. They are laundering working people's money in America and around the world.